This is an ABC podcast. G'day from Gadigal Land, I'm David Lipson. This week, it's taking longer to see a doctor and it's often costing us more too. For years, we've heard the answer is more GPs, but is there another way to fix Medicare? And Indonesia makes sweeping changes to its criminal code. The ban on sex outside of marriage has barley goers worried, but the laws actually go much further than that and could threaten to erode democracy in the world's most populous Muslim nation. But first, energy prices have dominated the news all year with concerns about high power bills and even a shortage of supply. Wholesale energy prices have soared due to the war in Ukraine. A report by the Australian energy market operator reveals wholesale power prices have soared 141% in the last three months. The cost of gas at the moment for some of our products is actually more than the cost of the product itself. It sounds uh, unbelievable, but that's the case today. During the election campaign, Anthony Albanese promised to cut household power bills by $275 a year. But by the time the budget was delivered in October, Treasury was forecasting electricity prices would rise by 56% over the next two years. This week, the Prime Minister sat down with the states to try to work out a solution. Extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. And we know with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what we've seen is a massive increase in global energy prices. And because of Australia uh, not investing in enough of our own energy assets, what we have is a vulnerability to those international price movements, and that is placing pressure on businesses here, but also on households going forward. Melissa Clark is a political reporter with the ABC. What they've decided to do is put a cap on the price that gas can be sold on the domestic market. For This is uncontracted gas, and that'll be a $12 per gigajoule limit. Now, there'll also be a, a code of conduct. Now, at the moment, there's a, a voluntary code of conduct that governs uh, what must be offered to the domestic market uh, in terms of uncontracted gas. That's now going to become a mandatory code of conduct to give it a bit more strength. And the ACCC is going to be used to enforce and monitor this to make sure that the cap is abided by and those benefits are passed on. So the government plans to recall parliament next week to bring in legislation to make sure this can happen. But ultimately, it's that $12 per gigajoule cap that will make the difference in bringing a bit of heat out of the gas prices on the East Coast market. And how much lower is that $12 per gigajoule than what we've been seeing on that market? Oh, look, we're talking several orders of scale here. I mean, we've seen significantly higher gas prices than that. And you will talk to industrial users of gas. So these are uh, big... uh, energy intensive industries that buy directly on the wholesale market and they will give you quotes that they've been given and they will range from at the lower end say 35 36 dollars per gigajoule mm. up to more than a hundred 120 dollars wow. per gigajoule so you know a huge scale of difference to bring that cap in at twelve dollars per gigajoule right so that should flow into our electricity bills at, at uh, 
at some point and also for small businesses and larger businesses too. But coal is another big factor in all of this too. So what's the government doing there? Well, this is in fact a, a bigger factor because the generation of electricity by coal-fired power stations in New South Wales and in Queensland is one of the most important factors in setting uh, energy prices in the East Coast. It is a huge element in determining how much we pay for electricity. But it's a little more complicated because uh, it's really the states that run uh, this infrastructure that's connected to coal, and it's different in each state. So what's been agreed by state premiers uh, as well as territory leaders in the Commonwealth is to put in a temporary cap of the sale of wholesale thermal coal of $125 a tonne. Now, for New South Wales, they will need to uh, negotiate a code around this and bring in legislation, so they too will have to have Parliament come back to legislate for this process. In Queensland, it's a little bit different because uh, the Queensland government owns its major coal-fired power stations. Uh, They will be able to use powers that they already have under law to direct this cap to come into place. But there will need to be some compensation measures around this too. So it gets a little bit complicated, but uh, they are really relying on this $125 a tonne cap to do the bulk of the heavy lifting in terms of taking the heat out of the, the energy price The government's also setting aside a a sizeable pool of money to directly subsidise some households and small businesses. How will those payments be provided and who's going to be eligible? This is a really critical part because as much as the caps are important, they will not go far enough to make a difference when it comes to hip pockets. So the federal government and state governments combined are going to spend, it's $1.5 billion from the federal government matched by the state and territory governments collectively to get financial support through to households. Now, they don't want to just give a cash handout because they're worried that will add to inflation, which is part of the problem in the first place. So what they they want to do is make sure that that money can come off bills rather than giving households and businesses cash to pay the bill. Now, this is where it gets complicated because they've decided that in order to target the people who need the help the most, that they'll give support to people who receive Commonwealth payments. So this can be anyone from receiving, say, welfare payments through to parenting payments or study support payments. That's who it will be targeted to. But because the bills are managed through state-based systems, they're going to have to figure out how to get the Commonwealth information to coordinate with the state-based systems to get the money in. And that hasn't been figured out yet. It's pretty clear. So uh, there's a lot of money there, but it's going to have to be administered differently in every state and territory. So treasurers are going to have to sit down through Christmas and into early January to figure out how to make that happen. Of course, it's not just people on Commonwealth payments who are suffering, though. It's it's all Australians. Mm. So will this bring household electricity bills down? It will, but it will be hard to really see the difference for most people. So uh, let me explain. Uh, The best figures we have from the Federal Treasury Department is that the combination of these measures will leave the average household $230 better off than they otherwise would have been. So look, that's certainly a a good chunk of money. But when we look at the detail of that, so that's better than they otherwise would have been. The point is, electricity bills are still going to go up and go up substantially. So at the budget that we had in October, Treasury was forecasting that energy prices would go up around 20% 
this year and 30% the following year. So combined over the two years, taking into account that compounding factor, that was about a 56% increase that households were facing. Now, with these new measures, the estimates we have now is that it will be a 20% increase this year still and a 23% increase next year. So cumulatively around 47.6%. So yes, that's not a a huge reduction, is it? Not a huge reduction. Mm. So instead of your average power bill going up by seven or $800, it might only go up by five or $600. And the measures that the government has announced today is that $230 average improvement. But oh boy, you're still going to get a lot of bill shock when you're opening uh, your next uh, uh, enveloped bill coming into the mail uh, when it comes to the new year because even with these measures, there will be substantial increases to electricity prices nonetheless. So this is a very serious intervention in in our electricity, our commodities markets. What are the dangers of of tampering with, with these otherwise what are normally free markets? Look, it is certainly a significant intervention in the market that would not be considered in normal times by a Labor government or a coalition alike. But what we're seeing here is a response to pretty extraordinary circumstances. Uh, The Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had an, an unprecedented impact on international energy markets. And the federal government's response is actually similar to responses we're seeing in other nations that are affected by the ebbs and flows of international energy market prices. Uh, They are acknowledging that this is a moment in time that is outside the normal de- the normal bounds of demand and supply, that this is an extraordinary external factor that justifies government intervention. And I think the fact the government has emphasised that this is a 12-month measure, there's no suggestion at this point that they'll extend that, although who knows what will happen over the next 12 months. But I think that's an acknowledgement that this is in response to an extraordinary external measure and that other vagaries in the energy system that we face as a result result of transitioning from fossil fuels through to a renewables-based system is something that the market will have to deal with. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine is an external factor beyond those bounds and warrant federal government in intervention. ABC political reporter Melissa Clark. Holiday season is almost upon us and this year, with borders reopened, hundreds of thousands of Australians have been heading to Bali. So news this week from Indonesia was unsettling. Indonesia bans sex outside of marriage, punishable by a year in jail. Our love affair with Bali on the rocks, thanks to a controversial new law. And there's no exemption for foreigners. That's scary. We're there to have fun, so I wouldn't be worried about it too much. Oh yeah, we might think about it maybe Thailand or something instead. The ban on sex outside marriage is worrying enough, but there are many other, arguably much more pernicious, elements of this massive change to Indonesia's criminal code. Blasphemy laws have been strengthened. Apostasy, that is, renouncing religion or convincing someone else to do that, is now a crime. It's now illegal to insult the president. And there are new restrictions on media regarding how news can be reported. I was really shocked because these are problematic articles that are against international human rights law, international human rights norms. 
that have been ratified by Indonesia for the last 20 years. Usman Hamid is executive director of Amnesty International in Indonesia. First of all, outlawing sex outside marriage is a violation to the right to privacy protected under Indonesian constitutional law, Indonesian national law, and Indonesian human rights obligation under international law. And such morality provisions could even potentially be misused not only to criminalize victims of sexual assaults or to target members of the LGBTQI community, but also to other groups. I believe gender minorities, including LGBTQI plus community, will be particularly affected by the lowest and also uh, regarding articles about the banning of cohabitation. Mm, because, of course, same-sex marriage does not exist in Indonesia. The question a lot of Australian couples and, and other tourists have in their mind is, will they be in danger of breaking the rules if they have a holiday in Bali? I think there is likelihood for the international tourists to be in danger when they visit Indonesia, especially areas which tends to have some conservative, intolerant attitude groups, which have been known to be acting by taking the law into their hands. Now they have new justification, which is Indonesian national law. Although I believe that some segments of society in Indonesia, I believe they are very open-minded, but there are groups which are widely known to be intolerant, to be self-claiming of morality and, and taking the law into their hands by enforcing the law with their own hands. Right. So it's not just the, the threat of, of jail, it's, it's the threat of actual physical harm by some of the less tolerant groups in Indonesia. Right, Mm. exactly. These laws go much, much deeper than just extramarital sex bans, don't they? Generally speaking, how will they impact on human rights in Indonesia? It will be a huge, significant blow. And the fact that Indonesian government and the House agreed to pass this problematic penal code that effectively stamping out many human rights is really appalling. So this will be contentious, and I think this will worsen the already shrinking civic space in Indonesia. The latest report by Amnesty a couple of months ago has highlighted more than 300 cases of individuals being attacked physically, being criminalized by the problematic law, like cyber law and criminal law regarding uh, defamation, regarding treason, regarding the banning of political discourse such as Marxism or any ideology deemed to be anti-state ideology called Pancasila. Also on blasphemy, it has affected the overall community of religious minorities such as Christian or minorities within a certain religion such as Shia community or Ahmadis community within Islamic community. Mm. So, well, well, as you know, in 2017, Jakarta's governor, Ahok, who was very popular, he was competent, he took a strong stand on corruption, he was jailed right. for blasphemy. Now, many saw that exactly. case as politically motivated. How much easier do you think these new laws around blasphemy, apostasy, insulting the president, how much easier does that make it for those in power to crush their political opponents in the future? 
it would be much easier. I think even before the adoption of this new law, the government has been able to weaponize law enforcement agency to crush over political opposition. So a policy of banning or crossing over freedom of expression, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of association in the name of national unity, in the name of pluralism and not necessarily a pluralism values that are based on cosmopolitan values such as human rights or democratic values, but rather based on a more hyper-nationalistic kinds of values. And this has overall pushing back uh, the progress of Indonesian democratic reform, especially under the last 10 years of Indonesian polity. And perhaps I could say that in the last seven years under Joko Widodo's leadership, uh, Indonesian democracy has even suffered a lot. And no wonder that not a single international scholars uh, still consider Indonesia as a high quality democratic country. We're still under democratic platform. We, we still do have, you know, electoral system with fair and relatively credible system, but we no longer have a high quality civic space for public protest or criticism. We no longer have political system in which checks and balances are functioning well by the role of political opposition, by party-based political opposition. So mm. this is certainly not a very positive sign to look at the future of Indonesia in the years to come. That's Usman Hamid, the executive director of Amnesty International in Indonesia. Well, you don't need me to tell you it's getting harder and harder to see a doctor. And when you do get an appointment, it's costing you more. Bulk billing? Well, great if you can find it. My doctor previously always bulk billed for the last 15 years and he's just gone away from that. I've had to move to a couple of different GPs because it's often really hard to get an appointment with my GP. Every time I go to the doctor, uh, it's okay. You put your card and, uh, the, you know, you get your uh, rebates straight away. I wish I was a bit more, but... <laughs> just yesterday, my um, haematologist, the receptionist called and asked me for a repeat. And so I had to ring my GP and then I had to ask, do I have to come in and pay for an appointment? And she said no, but I do have to pay $25 for an admin fee. It's led to calls for an overhaul of Medicare. And this week, the Grattan Institute, a think tank, released a report urging the federal government to transform the way Medicare is funded and the way GP clinics are staffed. So is Medicare broken and can it be fixed without smashing the budget? Look, I think it's beginning to show signs of stress. It's been around a long time. It hasn't changed in a long time, but everything around it is changing. Health economist Professor Anthony Scott is from the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research at the University of Melbourne. So Medicare is essentially, you know, it, it provides subsidies to patients. It doesn't pay doctors directly, and that has all sorts of consequences for how it works and is working now. And it was designed for an episodic model, fee-for-services. You come in for a consultation and you pay me and that's it. And so as the population has changed, as we've seen the onset of, of chronic disease and different patterns of disease over time emerging, it's become apparent that really, you know, the way Medicare general practice is funded, it's not really suitable to provide kind of longitudinal continuity of care for patients with chronic complex conditions who need regular care 
by the same professional or the same group of professionals over time. And the FIFA service system has all sorts of strange incentives and things within it, which means that doctors aren't supported to do what they do best, and which means that also patients then suffer. Mm. So it seems that the system of Medicare is less fit for purpose than perhaps it once was. Doctors' groups argue that lifting the bulk billing rate, that is the amount that the doctors ultimately kind of receive yes. from the government, would yeah. encourage more GPs to offer care at no cost to the patient. Would that mm-hmm. work? Look, to an extent, yes. Um, I mean, I think another thing with Medicare is that although we think of it as universal health insurance scheme, you know, 10 to 15% of people generally, but about 30% of people with chronic disease will skip GP visits because of the cost. And I'll be honest, we've had times where we've probably taken my son with asthma to the emergency department rather than see a GP because you know you're going to have to wait hours and it's going to cost you money. So that's sort of our experience recently. Medicare for GP visits, it doesn't guarantee for people on low income or with chronic disease that that those costs will be zero. And so the bulk billing rate is, is a reflection of that. Obviously, if you get bulk billed, you don't pay anything for your GP. But again, they're never guaranteed to be bulk billed. You don't know in advance when you when you ring up, is this going to consultation going to be bulk, bulk billed or not? It's very difficult to get bulk billing consultations now. And although that would increase the revenue flowing to GPs via the patient subsidies, it won't solve the basic structural issues with the system. So it'll, it'll throw more money at it, but money by itself won't fix it. We've also heard repeatedly from the doctors' union, the, the AMA and others, that we simply need more GPs. Australia mm-hmm. has more GPs per population than the OECD average, and, and we have way more in training than there were a decade ago. So yeah. is more GPs really the answer? I mean, so, yeah, you're right. The number of GPs has been growing and the number of specialists has been growing much faster. So junior doctors, when they're choosing especially, they're much more likely to choose to be another specialist rather than a GP. So that's an ongoing, long-standing issue. There's GP training places remaining unfilled, but often it's the location of GPs. It's, it's a distribution of GPs. Doctors can choose to practice where they like. Um, and generally, you know, if you come in from overseas as a GP, you're you're kind of mandated to work in a rural area for about 10 years before you can work in the city. So the rural populations, they rely on international medical graduates to, to provide the care largely. So the issue is about distributions. It's trying to, it's really, you know, how do we get doctors into the areas, geographic areas, which need the most? Mm. So this report from the Grattan Institute out this week suggests another approach where GPs are better supported by nurses and physios and the like for a more kind of holistic approach to healthcare. How would that approach, do you think, work for patients in particular? Look, I think um, from the patient's perspective, it's it's really the, the convenience of having a one-stop shop. I think that's what people want. They don't want to kind of be running around with lots of long delays with various places uh, to see various doctors. So that's an important thing to do, but how to do that is the key issue and problem, and, 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 and there's no real clear plan, I don't think, as to how that might happen. Yeah, because that was my next question. How far would it go in actually relieving pressure on the system? Yeah, I mean, I think, so it's not necessarily more GPs, as you mentioned, it, it's actually, you know, how do we use GPs' time that they do have? How do we use that better? And that could be by making sure that for some tasks, we're using practice nurses and allied health. What sort of um, tasks? 
well, it, it might be things like taking blood pressure and simple measurements like that. You go into hospital, it's, it's, it's the nurse who always takes your blood pressure while, while you're lying in the hospital bed and takes all your vital signs and that kind of thing. And there's tasks like that, there's dietary advice. So there's a lot of things that practice nurses can do. I think the evidence does suggest that for those kinds of tasks, practice nurses are equally as good as GPs. They might take a little bit longer sometimes because they're, they're chatting to you, but that's actually kind of important as well when you're trying to get an idea of, of what the patient's whole condition is like as, as well as the family background and other things which are important to recommending the different kinds of care. So, you know, it would work in an integrated fashion. It's hard, I mean, it's, I guess for GPs who are kind of in control of the clinical care, they may think it might be a bit costly to try to involve somebody else in the care when they can just do it or whatever. You know, it's much easier for them to do it. And some tasks are harder to kind of separate out than others, if you like. So I think it's, it's just a bit tricky to kind of separate out these tasks. But it works in other places as well. You know, in the ACT, they have nurse-led clinics and nurse practitioners who, uh, you know, can at least um, see people initially and then essentially kind of triage them to, to GPs or other care if they need to as well. Lots of the potential solutions also involve changing the way in which the Medicare system is funded, and that's where it gets a little complicated. Some are calling for a blended funding model. That's where government subsidies are allocated to GPs based on complexity of cases, demographics and socio-economic factors. I mean, I think having a blended payment model, any health economist who, who is doing, like me, who does work on payment models for doctors we know that blended payment models are good because you, you don't have the extreme um, incentives within fee-for-service, which is higher volume of care. You don't have the extreme kind of incentives within capitation payment, which is a payment per patient, like a, a block budget you get, where there's incentives to refer more and that kind of thing and prescribe more. So the blended payment model is kind of optimal. What we don't know is what the optimal blend might be between these different payment models. But certainly some move away from fee-for-service is is necessary now, I think. And, and many, many reports have said this in addition to the Grattan Institute report, but it's very hard to make that change. And I've been in Australia about 17 years now and um, and there's constant talk of this and nothing has really actually happened ever. And even where there has been some possibilities of things changing for the various trials, really, at the end of the day, the, the doctor's peak bodies have kind of said no to this. But I think it's trying to really find a way to do this that is going to improve patient care. And if doctors can see that it improves patient care, then, then they'll be on board. That's Professor Anthony Scott from the University of Melbourne. Well, that's this week's episode. Now, as we remind you every week, if you like the pod, you can go and subscribe. It's called This Week. It's produced by Madeline Jenner, Nick Grimm, Anna John, and me, David Lipson. 